Hello folks and welcome to another SACPAS session. Um, we are here today with um, Stéphane de, de Villiers. I'm hoping I'm saying that correct. Um, thank you for joining us. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. And we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship to the land. SACPAD commits to assist reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the ways past and present injustices can be reconciled. Uh, SACPAD is very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. Stefan, who's with us today, and thank you very much for joining us today, Stefan, is the coordinator of the Male Domestic Abuse Outreach Program at the Calgary Counseling Service, or Centre, rather. Stefan's social work, career, social work career spans outreach and clinical work with individuals, couples, and families impacted by domestic violence. He holds a master's of social work degree from the University of Calgary, as well as a postgraduate certificate in traumatic stress studies. Stefan participates on numerous domestic violence related working groups, including as a gender and sexual diversity ad advisory board member to the Calgary Police Service, and as a member of the Calgary Domestic Violence Collective Ethnocultural Diverse Communities Working Group. He is an educator and has presented on men's experience of abuse at numerous conferences, including the Canadian Domestic Violence Conference and the International Federation of Social Workers Conference. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us here today and we look forward to your presentation. Thank you so much, Annelise. And I want to just thank Sakpa uh, for inviting me to do this presentation. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so my presentation today is called Not Alone. And we're going to be talking about men's experiences of domestic abuse. Um, just a little bit about the agency that I'm part of. So Calgary Counseling Centre is a mental health agency based within Calgary um, that provides generalist mental health services. And as part of the services that we provide, we also provide uh, family violence prevention um, services um, to, to, to individuals that are using violence as well as to individuals that are experiencing violence. So under that, um, I guess, umbrella, that's where my program exists. And next slide, please. Um, what we offer through the Male Domestic Abuse Outreach Program uh, is outreach services. So this is a service that's free. There's no charge. Individuals uh, really across the province of Alberta can call in um, to get information on abuse, um, to be connected with resources to get some crisis counseling if they need it um, and there's no referral needed for for accessing our outreach line um, 
it isn't a crisis line, but we do um, we do respond within 24 hours. And the second type of service that we provide for for men who experience abuse is counseling services. So we provide counseling for individuals, for couples. We also have some group programming as well. Um, and there is no waitlist for that as uh, as a service. Uh, there is a sliding scale, which means there is a small fee associated with that. But again, there's no referral needed, and it is based on uh, reported household income, self-reported household income. Um, then the third thing that um, the third service that I offer is is really just to do public education like I'm doing today is going out and meeting with with the public and meeting with community organizations that work within the field of domestic violence um, to provide some education some resources um, and then also we work um, fairly closely in the past we have with researchers that are looking at this at this topic um, because it is a relatively under-researched area um, learning more about men's experiences of, of uh, domestic violence and abuse. Next slide please. I'm going to just start by um, providing the definition that we use in our program for what we mean by domestic abuse. So the way that we frame it is that it's an ongoing pattern of controlling behavior where where the goal is for the one partner to subordinate or isolate or intimidate the other person. Um, and I think the, the important thing to be aware of when we're talking about issues around domestic abuse is that we're not necessarily talking about just physical violence. Um, it is a lot larger than that. And and um, really, I think uh, the more we learn about it, we're understanding that it's really about coercion. Um, and that can be done in, in a variety of different ways, either you know, psychological, physical, sexual, um, financial, um, or emotionally. So there are a lot of different ways that people can, can uh, go about trying to intimidate or, um, uh, yeah, intimidate the other person. Um, so some examples that we might encounter from the clients that come into our program is that they'll share experiences of being isolated from their support network or that they're being monitored, uh, video cameras are being put in around the house or that they're being um, called names, put down. Um, you know, we also get cases where men are experiencing health issues and then um, they're being denied their medications or um, you know, they're being attacked when they're asleep. So it, it really comes in all kinds of different, uh, different forms. Next slide, please. Okay, so the question I often get asked as an outreach worker, as a public educator is, is male domestic abuse rare um, in terms of men experiencing it? And um, there isn't a lot of data about it. It's still a fairly under-researched area, but the data that we do have does indicate that it is probably more common than most of us think it is. Um, so the statistic I have on this slide, um, you know, indicates that about that in 2018, Statistics Canada found that 36% of men who completed uh, a survey reported experiencing some form of psychological, physical, or sexual violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Um, so just for comparison, uh, when women completed that questionnaire, it came out at 44%. So slightly lower, but still fairly high. 
Um, we also see that, you know, in, in sort of police reported instances of domestic abuse, the numbers are quite different. Um, so they're about 80% are, are female victims that are stepping forward um, and about 20% are, are males. But even that number indicates that, you know, 20% is, is still quite a large number um, and, and indicates that the, those men need services as well. Slide, please. So I, I want to talk about just the way that abuse can show up differently for men, because I think there are some differences. Um, oftentimes, we kind of lump together abuse as, as a one type of thing. And, and as I've already mentioned, there are different types of abuse, and it can be experienced differently between um, men and, and women. And I know I'm using the binary, and it's not because I'm not acknowledging that there are other genders. It's simply that we only have data, really, on the uh, experiences of men and women. Um, there's less data available on, on sexual minorities and under uh, other gender minorities. But we know that men's experiences from the data uh, of, of abuse is that they often um, minimize it and they don't realize that they're in an abusive situation. And part of that is the socialization that men experience where, um, you know, they're kind of taught from a young age that, you know, emotions aren't something that you show, that, you know, vulnerability is, is not something that you want to share with other people, um, that you should be strong, that you should suck it up. Um, so all of these sort of social messaging uh, that we, we, we have in our culture around masculinity um, really makes it difficult for men who are experiencing abuse to, to recognize what they're experiencing, first of all, and then to reach out for help um, and get support. Um, unfortunately, I also hear many stories of, of men, you know, reaching out to family doctors or, or going to, you know, a church pastor or talking to a counselor um, and getting a very negative experience or, or not being believed. And so, you know, with those kinds of experiences, it just becomes more and more difficult for, for men to reach out because they don't know what kind of response they're going to get. Next slide. So the types of men that we see at our program, I've kind of divided them into four different types. Um, so like I said, our outreach line is open to the public. Anybody can call in. Um, so some people that call in are, are men that are just, they're in an, in an unhappy relationship. They, they don't know if they're being abused. They're not sure. They're kind of looking for an expert opinion on that. Um, and so they're just looking for information uh, and looking for options, right? Um, so for those types of clients, you know, we might suggest that they come in for a more thorough assessment around the health of the relationship. Um, and, you know, if we if we determine that it's not necessarily abuse, but it's an unhappy situation that, that needs addressing, you know, we might suggest couples counseling in those cases. Um, the second type of client that might come in are, are men that, you know, they're, they want to help their partner, um, whether that partner is a, is a woman or another man, um, you know, they, they see that their partner is behaving in a way that's abusive, but they, they believe that that is coming from their own history of trauma or that they, they just need help. 
Um, so in those cases, again, we do a fairly thorough assessment trying to figure out what the relationship dynamics are, um, it, whether there is some accountability on the part of the abuser, and then we work with the family system to try and, and help them be supported. Um, so that might look like individual counseling, it might look like uh, group counseling for the abuser, um, it might look like um, helping the kids if there are kids also accessing some support as well. Um, because we know that kids observing domestic violence, whether it's from a man or from a woman or anyone, um, has lifelong Im you know, uh, impact. The third type of client that we're seeing are, are simply men that are, you know, by any objective standard, experiencing domestic abuse. Um, and so in those cases, we really meet the men where they are. Um, some men, you know, they want to stay in the relationship, they want to try and make it work. Um, some men are ready to leave and they just want to know how to do that. Um, some men are, you know, just looking to be connected with, with other resources like lawyers that can help them figure out custody. Um, so we, we really see a little bit of everything. Um, and then, of course, there are the men that are, are simply looking for, for counselling um, for themselves. And then the fourth group, uh, uh, type of man that you know we do see but it is fairly rare are men that are saying that they are victims but they are actually I would say the primary aggressor or they are using control controlling behavior in the relationship um, and you know that is something that we find out as we do our screening and our assessment process and then we try to you know connect them with resources because obviously they're not happy they know something is not working maybe there isn't accountability yet but there may be an opening for us to intervene and and help them to to recognize their own behavior as abusive um, and to to connect them with appropriate resources as well next slide please all right, so the, the next slide is really about just outlining some of the impacts that we see. Um, you know, another question that often gets asked of me is, is whether, you know, whether the, the impact of domestic abuse on men is as severe as on women, um, which, I mean, I don't love that question, but I think the, the takeaway I hope that uh, you all will have from today is that it does have long-term impacts. The, the type of abuse that men are experiencing. Um, you know, people are experiencing pretty severe uh, uh, physical health uh, consequences, whether that's loss of weight, um, headaches, sleep problems. Um, if they have underlying existing health conditions, those can worsen. Um, PTSD symptoms where they're, you know, in having intrusive thoughts, um, nightmares, flashbacks, uh, panic attacks, um, alcohol and drug abuse is, is a common thing as well as a coping mechanism. It can have negative impacts on their functioning in, in a work environment where they can't necessarily concentrate. Um, their other relationships might be impacted. Uh, we know that often in coercive uh, environments, the, the abuser might be isolating the partner from their support network, so they may lose contact with friends and with family members um, and can feel very isolated. Um, and then the parenting piece. Um, unfortunately, you know, even if they do decide to leave the relationship, it doesn't mean the abuse ends when there are kids involved. And, you know, for men, it can be a very difficult uh, journey to maintain a relationship with their kids when they're navigating the family law system. Um, it can be uh, incredibly challenging. Next slide. 
Um, yeah, so some other impacts on men's mental health. Um, so many men struggle uh, with, with thoughts of suicide. They report, you know, being fearful. Um, there is a strong loss of an identity, um, you know, uh, as a husband, as a father, as a provider that goes with, with this experience. Um, there's a lack of self-esteem that we often see. Anxiety and depression are, are incredibly common experiences. Um, I'm not going to read all of these bullet points, but yeah, just a sense of uh, overall, you know, embarrassment, a sense of um, not living up to the masculine ideal of, you know, being in control, you know, being uh, being able to fix their own problems, um, and that can that can have a really uh, negative impact on their self sense of self. Next slide, please. So common symptoms um, uh, that we see among men, I, I've covered some of them, but this is, I guess, more objective data that we collect from our uh, intake process and, and from our groups that we run. We, we evaluate all our programs and, and get outcome data from those. Um, so the, the last column on the slide is, is some of the numbers that we see among our, our men's group that we run for uh, men who experience violence. Um, so we see symptoms of dissociation, right? So where, where men are numbing out their, um, their emotions, um, trying to just kind of disconnect from themselves uh, in a way, in, a, in, a, in an attempt to cope. I've already mentioned anxiety and depression, sexual abuse um, can be an, an issue as well. Um, sleep insomnia is very common side effect, and then you know sexual disturbances or difficulties as well. Next slide, please. Um, a concerning thing that we're seeing also with the clients that are coming in for services is that they are, you know, 30% of them in this data set that I'm showing on the si slide um, reported um, expressing suicidal thoughts and, and um, ideation. Um, and we know that this is concerning because, um, you know, men are a high-risk group when it comes to suicide, particularly in the age group that we tend to see in our agency, which is uh, around the age of 40 for this for this program. Um, you know, uh, that age group between 40 and 60, that is a high-risk group for, for suicidal um, attempts, suicide attempts. Um, and yeah, so these men are, are really suffering um, when by the time that they reach us and that they are reaching out for professional supports. Next slide. Uh, thank you. So substance misuse is, is another common um, uh, issue that men come in with. Um, we don't at our agency provide, you know, addiction counseling per se, but we can connect them with other resources um, to support them with that. But yeah, so about 23%, almost a quarter of the men that are accessing the program do have struggles with substance use. Um, so that is something that we're always screening for as well. So I thought I'd just, oh, next slide, please. Um, I thought I would just quickly go through the the program assessment, how we, you know, how, what we look for when we get new clients coming in. Um, so like I mentioned, we, we screen for the dynamics in the relationship, whether, uh, you know, who's doing what to whom, what are the, uh, the what kinds of abuse are showing up in the relationship. Um, there's a big emphasis on really identifying risk um, and, and working with the client to identify how to keep them safe, how to keep their kids safe if there are kids involved, 
um, and then you know identifying the needs that they have, really customizing our response to be appropriate to them. Next slide, please. Some of the questions that we might ask um, in an assessment would be, can you tell me about the last time something violent or frightening happened? What do you usually do when this happens? What's the worst time there's been? Um, have, have you ever been injured? Have your kids ever been injured? Um, and these, these kinds of questions help us to determine, well, a number of things. For example, whether the abuse is, is you know, unilateral from one side to the other, or sometimes there is abuse that's bi-directional um, from both parties. Um, and so we want to be able to identify that as a risk factor. Um, it also gives us a sense of the severity of the abuse um, that's happening, the frequency of it. Um, these are all things that we are paying attention to. Next slide, please. Um, yeah, so in terms of safety, that's that's a very big part of my job um, is to really pay attention to, um, you know, how can we keep everyone in the home safe, including the person that is using abuse. Um, and so, you know, it, it, often we'll we'll work with with the um, the person coming in to, you know, figure out. I mean, can you have a bag ready to go that you can just grab and go? Um, can you have? Um, somebody on speed dial that you can call that can come over if if you need somebody to to be there um do your kids have some place to go or to some one to call if you're not at home um so all of these kinds of things are, are questions that we we work uh with the clients collaboratively um to, to help them um you know forge a path forward uh next slide please and the other piece that we always also want to celebrate are, are people's resilience and their strengths and the resources that they have. Um, you know, the fact that they're reaching out for support that already indicates, you know, uh, strength in my in my estimation. It's, it's not an easy thing to ask for help, particularly when we're talking about what's happening in the family. Um, and, and, and sometimes it feels very um, vulnerable to do that. Um, so we work with clients to identify, you know, their existing support networks, you know, what kind of family and friends they have. Do they have a family doctor that they can talk to about these experiences? Um, are they connected with, um, you know, if they're going through a high conflict divorce, there's a lot of meetup groups or, or a lot of, you know, uh, faith communities have groups that, that people can join. Um, and those can be incredibly helpful um, because it's it's a very lonely experience and we want to make sure people are properly uh, connected and have a place where they belong and, and can open up. Um, yeah, and then I guess the last question we always want to ask them is around like what they feel like they need, um, right? Not imposing our, uh, you know, our wishes for them, uh, but really taking the lead from them around how they want to move forward with their lives. Next slide, please. So the common types of services that we see being asked for by our clients um, are, well, there's a variety of them, but some of the top ones are in, in things like how to, how to navigate the court system. Um, that, is, that is a really big one for people that are in the process of separating or, or divorcing. Um, you know, oftentimes, 
you know, they're being cut off from their kids, they can't see their kids, and that can be incredibly devastating. And so, you know, helping them connect with legal aid or, or a legal clinic of some sort, um, if they can't afford a private lawyer, um, yeah, so just helping helping with that process. And then uh, transitional housing that allows for children, that's another challenge. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of resources out there um, for that kind of support. Um, we do have a few shelters here and there that will allow men to stay there, um, uh, but it, it, it's not often very well advertised and, and it's hard to know unless you're you know within the domestic violence sphere or the world um, providing those kinds of services. Um, we get requests from men for financial support, um, you know, whether that's, you know, retraining programs um, uh, or, you know, getting onto disability. Um, so that that's another common um, request. Um, then, of course, the mental health and peer support element, which is, you know, where we can really support as an agency, um, you know, uh, to provide help with, you know, if they are experiencing those symptoms around PTSD or depression or anxiety to, to make sure that they have that um, addressed um, and, and quickly as well, because it can be a, a long drawn out process as well. So we want to make sure that they are uh, well supported. And then the last one on the slide there is substance abuse as well. Um, like I said, we don't offer that in-house, but we can connect them with, with appropriate resources. Next slide, please. Um, so I thought I would just quickly talk about our group program because it is a program that's available province-wide in Alberta. Um, and so, and I think it's a very effective intervention. Um, it's, it, it is a space for men uh, where they can gain a sense of community and a sense of belonging. Um, our program is actually facilitated by two therapists. Um, we have um, typically a man and a woman facilitate the group. Um, it's, it's fairly structured. We have themes with every week that we cover with them. Um, and there's that element of ongoing social connection, but also an element of skills development as well. Um, because a lot of these men, you know, they go through this kind of experience and they wonder if I'm ever going to be able to have a healthy relationship. Am I ever going to know how to even do that or approach that? Um, and so it's about rebuilding the self-esteem and, 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 and shoring up that self-esteem with, with actual skills as well, relationship skills. Next slide, please. So for the group, um, you know, we, we go again, we go through an assessment process with them. Uh, we do a safety risk assessment. Um, we, we uh, you know, we do need them to be at a certain level of functioning where they're able to actively participate and also, you know, give other people space um, to participate and, and provide feedback. Um, we used to offer this group uh, in person, but uh, right now we're only providing it uh, virtually, which actually has opened up more possibilities for us to reach areas that are underserved in rural areas as well um, since COVID-19. Um, and yeah, so it's a 14-week group that meets, we, meets on a weekly basis for, for two hours every week. Um, I won't go through every week, but I want to just kind of highlight some of the themes that we cover. So this is the next slide. Um, and yeah, so um, yeah, so some of the themes that we cover are around, you know, defining abuse, like what is abuse? Um, you know, often uh, 
I think there's some confusion sometimes around what abuse actually is. Um, and so it can be actually very helpful for, for individuals to kind of put language to it to, to really make it concrete um, and under, well understood. We, we also talk about resistance and, and how to respond to abuse. Um, and again, to address some of that shame, because a lot of men feel like, well, how did I let this happen? Um, but then we can kind of highlight the ways that they did resist that abuse. Um, it may not look like it from the outside, but there were good reasons for why they, why they responded the way that they did. Next slide, please. Um, you know, we also talk about things like social influences, social stereotypes around gender and how that influences um, experiences of abuse. Um, we talk about healthy relationships and, and also the different roles uh, that we can take on in, in conflicting relationships. Um, and then we do, we also help them to kind of look at their own family of origin uh, relationship patterns um, that often form a blueprint for how we, we approach our relationships moving forward. Next slide, please. And then also, uh, we we kind of shift in the last, um, you know, four or five weeks to to looking more forward to the future, um, and and helping helping these men to think about, you know. Where do they want to be? Uh, what What are the next steps going to look like? Um, and identifying also the progress that they've made over that 14-week period that the group runs, um, and it's often a pretty dramatic shift that we see. So, so yeah. So I just wanted to provide that brief overview, um, and the feedback that we've gotten. That's the next slide. Is 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 really quite positive, right? So, so men have have shared, and again, I won't read all of them, but they've shared that the online counseling experience was professional. It was flexible. Um, it turned my life around. Helped me to find the strength I needed to make the decisions that I needed to make to improve my life. Um, you know, it, it it really provides them with a sense of community that uh, many of these men lack. Next slide, please. Um, in terms of results, um, so again, like. Our, all our programs, we do pre-measures and post-measures to make sure that we are providing a, a good quality service. Um, and we see that 60% of the clients are either improved or recovered at the end of, of going through either individual counseling or group counseling with our programs. Um, so, so, so yes, we do see uh, quite significant shifts um, in terms of their functioning and then the final slide um, is basically just some information on how to contact us. Um, so we have the Calgary Counseling website where individuals can do an online intake. Um, and then also in the gray box, there's my direct line and the men's outreach email address. Um, if, you know, if, um, if people wanna reach out and, and find out more information, um, I encourage you to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that presentation. It's, um, it's, it's really um, wonderful to hear that there is a service for men. I think there's been such a, a, a dearth of, of, of resources for men to go to when they experience violence. So it's really wonderful to hear about your program. I'm going to jump right in uh, to the question and answer, if, if you're ready. Yeah, that's yep. great. Um, Mark Goodall. Much abuse is through financial control. In recent years, women have increasingly become the primary breadwinners. Are there stats that indicate this is resulting in increasing financial control abuse of men? Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, we do. I mean, I can't give you the exact stats on that, but I mean, I can speak from my clinical experience, um, just from from what men have shared with me in, in sessions that, um, you know, yes, uh, there is a lot of financial control happening um, and it can be it can be. Uh, quite varied, right? Like, I mean, we see clients who are perhaps new to the country um, and they don't necessarily even know the systems uh, in Canada and they are reliant on their partner um, and th that makes them quite dependent. So whenever there's a dependency, um, there, there's a vulnerability to that being abused. Um, you know, uh, I would I would suspect that as more women have taken on more uh, employment and uh, opportunities, that you know, with that, unfortunately, there does come that risk that, um, uh, you know, men who are partnered with an abuser will get more abused. Um, but um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, I can't, unfortunately, I can't give you an exact stat on that, but it is certainly something that we see in, in the work that we do. Um, Leona Jacobs, what have been the consequences of, pan of the pandemic on the incidences of domestic violence of men, specifically related to the news that there has been an overall increase in domestic abuse? Yeah, it's been a very interesting couple of years for our program. I, I, I'll say that, um, you know, we, we basically were running everything in person um, until March 16th. Um, and then, of course, everything shut down and, and we really had to scramble and figure out, OK, how are we going to continue to provide a service that obviously is needed? Um, and, you know, it was interesting because at the start of the pandemic, there was almost a lull where people weren't reaching out um, and it was kind of deathly silent for not not for a long period, but for a couple of weeks. Um, and I was, you know, I was curious about that. And then it started to pick up again and it, you know, it, it really ramped up. Um, and I think it was just because I you know, as we all probably were for a time there, a little disoriented, right? And and people were just kind of hunkering down and, and staying put and staying in the status quo. Um, and so it, it certainly impacted in that way. Uh, in terms of the experiences of abuse, I think the pandemic has made it, you know, more dangerous in some ways because of all the you know, we're all staying at home, or many of us are staying at home more more than before. Um, that uh, those kinds of coercive behaviors that involve things like stalking or things like monitoring other people's um, you know movements, um, things like um, you know monitoring who they who they're talking to. There's no there's not as much privacy now because everybody's sort of um, limited in, in in where you can go. Um, that certainly has had, I think, a negative impact on on men's experiences um, of yeah intimate partner abuse. In any case, yeah. Um, yeah, actually, you brought that up, and I was going to ask you about that. What about all the sort of software that is that is out there in terms of you know a control over your children, but but that's actually being used in abusive situations to control or to to spy on partners. So how does yeah. your organization deal with that? How do you? I mean, it's a difficult challenge, right? Like, especially, you know, when they're, you know, there's a fear that if you leave the home that you might never get back into the home. Um, and so that you're staying there, but then you're being monitored all the time. So, it, it, you know, I, I can't tell you, like, 
I think it's very, you know, it's very client specific in terms of how we how we respond to that. Um, but you know, it, it, it's it's a scary place to be when you you don't have that ability to move freely. <laughs> um, so so yeah, I mean, I think in in general my advice would be to report it <laughs> right um, to the authorities but even then there's concerns around well if I report it will 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 the police believe me will they will they pick my side right like um, there's a lot of fear around reaching out to authorities when these types of things happen um, you know typically we tell our clients you know document as much as you can make sure you have a paper trail of evidence um, as much as you can um, and you know um, that there are no easy solutions. It's it's really about you know doing the best that we can and, and making sure that it's not happening in secrecy because secrecy is really what keeps that abuse going, right? And uh, and if you can kind of break that down and and have more people be aware of what's going on, um, even just that is an is a very powerful intervention. Our next question comes from Laura Schultz. Are you aware if university social work degree programs are including men's experience experiencing domestic abuse information in their curriculum? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I went through the University of Calgary social work program and I mean, we didn't really have a lot of courses on domestic abuse, period. Um, although there were some elected courses that we could take. Um, but I mean, I didn't really learn about men's experiences of domestic abuse until I'd finished my my degree and, and got into the work that I was doing. Like I I just happened to work at an agency that had a program. And, and so I started to talk to the individual that was running the program prior to myself. And that was really where my eyes were opened. Um, and, you know, I think there's still a lot of, um, stigma around men's experiences of domestic abuse and and you know in some ways it makes sense right I mean a lot of the the services the infrastructure about around domestic violence were those things were built by women who were responding to women's experiences of domestic violence um, and that's still a, a you know that's still something that is very much um, happening and needs to be addressed um, but I think you know we do need a larger lens um, that takes into account that you know domestic abuse happens to everyone uh, regardless of gender regardless of background or you know class um, you know it, it really um, impacts everyone and you know we, we cannot we can't let our biases <laughs> prevent us from from providing services to people uh, just you know uh, based on their gender uh, and unfortunately it, it still is a challenge for for men I mean I've, I've had clients call services that are domestic violence services um, and they they were clearly a victim and they were referred to programs for for men who use violence right mm -hmm. um, and so that's still happening um, I think it is shifting slowly I think there is a, an awareness that this is an issue that um, is is happening and, and that needs more attention but it, it's not happening probably as as fast as most of us would hope <laughs> um, can I just pick up on the gender binary. So if if a gender non-binary person experiences uh, domestic abuse, w would they be 
referred somewhere? Would they even be able to attend any of the programs? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, there's not a lot of programs, and that's something that I'm fairly passionate about myself, but there aren't a lot of programs that are um, targeted towards people that are non-binary or even in same-sex relationships, um, you know, and so often they're kind of, you know, they're serviced by the general services, but there isn't not necessarily among, there's not necessarily a, a good understanding of the dynamics um, that are slightly different, right, in those in those circumstances. Um, in terms of our own program, I can speak to that. Um, you know, we service anyone who is, you know, accessing our program. So if you're identifying as male, um, you know, we will, my program will, will work with you. Uh, if you identify um, any other way, you can access our other uh, family violence prevention programs at the agency um, with the caveat that, you know, our groups that we offer are, you know, typically attended by um, the gender binary, <laughs> um, ex you know, um, and so it's not that they're not not permitted to attend those groups. It's just that it might not be particularly comfortable to do so. Um, so typically in those cases, we work more individually with those clients. Our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. You used the word recovered when talking about the post-counseling assessment. What does recovered look like? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. Um, so we use a, a questionnaire um, that is validated and, and, and widely used across the globe called the outcome, question, outcome questionnaire measure, uh, OQ uh, measure. And it, it basically divides um, people's functioning in different levels. So when, when we're saying recovered, what we mean is that um, those individuals have seen a drop in distress that now puts them in a zone where they're functioning at what's considered an average or normal level of functioning. Um, and, and so it's not that they don't still have challenges in their lives, um, but that they they now have what's considered the the skills and the the level um, the supports that they need to be able to to manage whatever is going on in their lives. Our next question comes from uh, Laurie Schultz. Does your program collaborate with similar programs across the country and beyond? Yeah, I mean we're always open to collaborating, um, and you know. Um, I, I sit on a number of boards and part of that is also to build that that sense of collaboration with other agencies. I mean, this isn't an issue that can be solved with by one agency or, or by one person. Uh, we need to work together. Um, so, you know, we, we connect, you know, I've worked with some agencies in BC. I've, I've connected with agencies across Alberta um, and in Ontario as well. Um, so, so, yeah, we, we are always looking for opportunities to, to build those bridges. Uh, Violet Mikmah, do you take men in the program who are currently facing domestic assault charges themselves? Yeah, so we do actually, you know, our agency does work with clients that are mandated as well. Um, so clients that are referred through the court system or clients that are referred, referred through the, the child services system as well. Um, and, and, and they can certainly access the outreach program. There's no limitation on that. Um, when it comes to the, the the counseling or the group programs, typically what we recommend is that they go through our, our other services that are 
looking initially at their own behaviors, so where they've used violence and abuse to address that. And once that has been addressed, then they can access the uh, the program, my program, uh, for support on on their experiences. Because we know that abuse isn't it's not a it's not a thing where, I mean, it you can be in a uh, abusive. Um, and also be a victim of abuse, right? Uh, I think that binary, if we want to talk about binaries, that's not a particularly helpful binary um, sometimes for understanding domestic abuse because it is, you know, in one relationship you can be abusive and in another relationship you can be the victim of abuse, right? Um, so so really understanding abuse not as an identity um, but more as a, as a behavior uh, or an event, yeah. How does... Um the stereotypes of masculinity feed into this. I know you touched based a little bit on that in your presentation, but do you actually help men um, in terms of addressing some of the masculinity stereotypes? Yeah, I mean a lot. Uh, we, we you know we have a whole week in the in the group program, but also in in the individual work that we do, where we we, we really look at like analyze the man box, and and sort of like the expectations of of what it means to be a man in, in today's world. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of contradictory messages that are being thrown around. And, and often I think men are, are feeling sort of lost in, in like in, in uh, being allowed to feel good about being masculine, right? Um, so, so there's a lot of pressure, I think, that men are, are feeling uh, right now. So we, we spend quite a bit of time about looking at, you know, what does healthy masculinity mean to you? Um, like, wh what does a good father mean to you, right? If we're talking about a father, um, you know, who were your role models growing up? Who were the people that you looked up to? Uh, both in the sort of in the public sphere, you know, um, in the media and the movies, but also in your family, like in your in your uh, family of origin, who were the men that, you know, you looked up to as as people that you wanted to emulate? Um, you know, where did you learn um, the ways that you respond to other people? Um, you know, our interpersonal relationships. You know, we ha we all tend to have certain stances that we take and then certain ways that we relate to other people. That you know, they come from somewhere. They come from our earlier experiences. And so, helping men to understand their own journey, their own story of who they are and how they got to be that person, um, can be really, I think, empowering because then they can take that narrative back and, and, and not be defined by their experience of abuse, but really write a new narrative for themselves moving forward. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Are your clients primarily self-referrals? Do they receive referrals from police or other agencies? Yeah, so I mean, I would say primarily, yes, they are self-referrals. There are people, but they're, I mean, self-referrals. They're referrals that have been recommended by other people um so because i mean my program uh, you know it, it while we try to get the word out it's not that well known um so often it's other agencies that are telling people about the program and then they're accessing it that way um so we we get referrals um self-referrals but we also get referrals from from other agencies um you know child services refers to us um you know sometimes we get referrals from uh, you know, sometimes police will will in, you know if they go to a situation where they suspect that the the male's uh, uh, being abused, they might recommend that they come talk to us. Um, victim services, you know, so we 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 have a 
good mix, I think, of, of people that are, are providing us referrals. I'm just going to skip the queue because Laurie has a follow-up question that I think relates to this. So okay. bear with me, folks, in the queue. I'll come back to you. Um, do you do you assist men to obtain peace bonds or a restraining order? Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I mean, I basically provide them the information on how to go about doing it. Um, you know, the... the I'm not a system navigator in the sense that I, I'm not doing case management with each male um, that accesses us. I'm, I'm more someone that provides them information on how you would go about doing things and then, um, you know, hopefully giving them some some support. But yeah, unfortunately, you know, the program is fairly small, <laughs> so we do also have limited resources. But yes, we, you know, we explain like the different types of, you know, restraining orders that are out there, what makes most sense, um, you know, do you need a restraining order? When do you need it? Um, and what the steps are? So, so we provide some basic, you know, I guess, um, information around what that process looks like. Okay. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Uh, certain eth ethnic, cultural, or even religious norms do not see abuse as we see it in our culture. How often do you see this or deal with it? Yeah, that's a really excellent question, and and um, you know I think it's it, it's not you know most of the clients that we we work with um, are you know Caucasian um, uh, Western, um, but we do have a small minority, and and that's part of why I sit on the ethnocultural uh, board with the CDVC. We do have a small minority of clients that do come from from other ethnic backgrounds. Um, in those cases. Um, you know, we tend to work with other agencies that are already active uh, in those communities um, to, you know, to provide that cultural lens. Um, but yeah, it, it can be it can be an interesting challenge. Um, you know, for for example, you know, we'll have newcomers coming into the country, um, and there there might be a lot of support and services for for the female in that in that relationship. Um, and, and you know, she may she may. Um, gain a lot of more power in some ways than she did in in, in the culture that she came from um, but there aren't the same kinds of supports for the for the male and often they really struggle to acclimatize or find work um, at the same level that they had before and that can really disrupt the the family dynamic and that's not always a case of abuse but it is a case of like the 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 relationship is no longer healthy because those dynamics have been disrupted our next question comes from uh, Leona Jacobs. Do victims of domestic violence of men tend to return to the family unit once they are recovered? I would say no. I would say the majority of the men that I see, um, they're 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 kind of on the way out of that relationship. Um, you know, it's gotten so bad. And again, you know, by the time that they reach out to professional supports, things have gotten pretty pretty severe. Um, so yeah, so typically they're at the place where they're now entering, you know, divorce proceedings, trying to figure out custody and access and and those kinds of things, and they're going their separate ways. Mary Shillington, do you have any programs addressing the children in such abusive relationships? 
Yeah, another really great question. So yeah, like I mentioned, kids are very much impacted by being exposed to this, and, and we know that from from the research. Um, so our our agency does have a a program that's actually geared for our, for kids and their parents, um, where the kids meet once a week um, to kind of do some fun activities together to learn some basic emotional regulation skills. Um, and then the parents meet on a separate day um, to learn ways that they can support their kids. Um, so we have two uh, groups in particular that are relevant here. So we have a group for children of divorce. Um, uh, and then we also have a group that's called Responsible Choices for Children. That's a group that is for 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 kids that maybe are are learning to act out in ways that are um, disruptive or not healthy, um, and need some some support in in terms of that. Um, so so yes, we do provide we do provide that kind of support. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Leona uh, says that I've missed one of her questions, but. I'm looking back through the feed and I have asked all the questions that you've provided, Leona. Um, so maybe just give us a little bit more information there. But that really was the last of our questions for today. Um, unless um, you have some more information to share with us, Stefan, I, I would like to put up your PowerPoint on how to contact. And while people are looking up your contact details. Um, I know that SACPA mostly does Southern Alberta. So um, what about folks, rural folks and folks who are living in Lethbridge? Are they welcome in your program? Yeah, like I said, I mean, in some ways, that's the silver lining of all of this COVID <laughs> situation that we're all navigating is that it's, it's really us opened us up to not be as geographically limited as we've been in the past. Um, I mean, I don't think that the virtual service delivery is going to go away at any point. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, we may, we may go back to in-person services uh, in addition, um, but I think the virtual services that we've been providing we're seeing great results, um, uh, you know, from our outcome data. Um, so that I think will continue, and and it does open up the 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 world for for rural people to be able to to participate in in, you know, whether it's one on one counseling or group counseling, but to actually be able to to benefit from some of the resources that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, we just got. Oops, we just got one more question coming in from Laurie Schultz. Does your program work with domestic abuse family court? Are judges educated on these issues? On these issues, rather? Yeah, so I mean, I don't particularly work with the judges, but I do know that people higher up than me in the agency do do that kind of um, collaboration with, with, with the legal system. Um, there are more education opportunities, um, you know, for lawyers and for, for judges that are being, um, you know, uh, offered. Um, so I think, I, like I said, I think it is slowly shifting. It is slowly changing. It is getting on people's radar. Um, it's just, it's, it's moving slow and it's, it's inconsistent. Um, you know, I think, you know, for example, I, I hear from clients in, in Calgary where they have positive experiences. Um, but then, you know, when you're talking to, you know, individuals that are perhaps outside of the city um, in rural areas, um, you know, they have more negative experiences. Um, so I think it's just inconsistent um, right now where the level of knowledge is around this issue, um, but it is slowly changing. 
And then uh, Laurie Schultz, thank, thank you, Stefan, for your informative presentation on the important issue. You may have touched on this, but are there residential programs for men if they need to leave? Yeah, that's that's a really uh, great question. So there aren't a lot. Uh, I think I briefly mentioned that, yeah, shelters overall, they're most, mostly for women. Um, but there are some programs. So the, there's a the Wheatland Crisis Shelter, which, you know, it's Strathmore, so a, a bit far away from Lethbridge. But, um, you know, there are uh, there, I would still, you know, if if you know someone that's going through an experience like this, I would still suggest reaching out to like domestic violence shelters, uh, because some some of them don't advertise that they provide this type of support, but they but they do, um, and they will on a case by case basis. Um, so so there are resources out there. Not a lot of them are publicly advertising it. Um, there's really just that one shelter that I'm aware of in in Calgary that does it. Um, but um, hopefully that that also is something that will change as we move forward. Wonderful. Thank you so much. <coughs> Excuse me. Before we wrap up this session, do you have a take home message for our viewers? Yeah, I, I kind of wanted just to leave with a quote that one of our clients actually um, uh, shared with us when when he went through our program. And I thought it really captured kind of the spirit of today's presentation. And and he said, I don't want abused women to be hurt or continue to be abused. That's not the point. The point is everybody who is abused has got to be treated properly because it really not only hurts that person, but it screws up society, the children, the community, you name it. And the stereotypes have got to end. And I think that really captures, you know, what I'm hoping to do is to maybe just challenge some of the the stereotypes that exist around, you know, domestic violence. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And for our viewers, um, please join us next week on the topic of the climate emergency and the future of fossil fuels. And we have Sapora Berman. Um, the International Program Director at Stand.Earth. So I hope you'll join us for that. And we'll end the stream. Thank you.